Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking to Savannah Sippel, whose debut poetry collection, WWJD and Other Poems, is out now from Sibling Rivalry Press. Savannah is a writer from Eastern Kentucky. Her poems have recently been published in Appalachian Heritage, Waxwing, Talking River, The Offing, and The Louisville Review. She is also the recipient of grants from the Money for Women Barbara Deming Memorial Fund and the Kentucky Foundation for Women. WWJD is a collection about claiming your identity, your voice, and your value. The book was a long time in the making, during a period in which Savannah was also coming out of the closet. The poems are honest about Savannah's struggle reckoning with herself, as well as with her faith and her relationship to her native Appalachia, even when that honesty is uncomfortable, as honesty can so often be. The book is, in many ways, about why and how we inflict pain on others, on our world, on ourselves. In this conversation, we talk about Savannah's long journey toward claiming the voice of this collection. We also talk about challenging the stories we're told, writing Jesus, and finding writerly courage. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss the importance of the current movement of queer Appalachian writing, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Once you find a place of acceptance, then you can start to be honest and authentic about what's happened, and it made a big difference. So is this your first, is this your first collection? It is, yeah. It is. How long have you been working mm-hmm. on How long were you working on this? Well, probably since 2010 or 2011, but there was a period where the manuscript was very different from what it is right now. It started out as a collection of persona poems, mm. and then I worked with Rebecca at Heinemann, and she said, you know, you definitely have a voice and a perspective that is really important. She said, but your po- some of these poems aren't working because you're not writing from your voice. Mm. Did that feel true to you when she said that? It did, because I had reached a point with the manuscript from where it was right there. Um, it had kind of reached a point where it was sort of stalled, like I wasn't sure what to do with it. It didn't feel completely whole, but it also didn't. I mean, it was preformed. It was book length and all of that. And so I worked with her and took it apart and figured out what was at the heart of it and then wrote almost a whole new book. <laughs> it's so funny, the um, the persona idea. Do you think about that now and feel like that was you kind of hiding a little bit behind other voices? I think that it was, I think it was me trying to hide I think it was also a little bit of me trying to find a way to write about Appalachia. I didn't have a lot of confidence in my experiences as an Appalachian. I mean, I grew up wanting to leave and grew up knowing that to have very many opportunities, I would more than likely have to leave. And I think I felt like maybe I wasn't Appalachian enough or my experiences weren't valid. I didn't grow up with first-hand knowledge of coal mining that had left my hometown 
by the time I came along. And so I was trying to find a way to write about the region and to write about my experience, but I, I think I just felt like I wasn't enough in a lot of ways. And so the persona helped me maybe bridge that gap. I, I talked to a lot of other Appalachian writers who struggle with that. And I struggle with that in my own way very deeply. And I feel like it it really is, you know, it's funny. I've had a couple conversations recently for the show where we've talked a lot about narrative form and the ways that we internalize these understandings of how it's supposed to look. And then we kind of have to undo these lessons that we didn't really realize we were absorbing. And and I think it's a similar thing with Appalachian identity. And and I I said like exactly what you just said. Oh, well, but I don't, like my family isn't in the coal industry. And that seems to be like the way you determine whether this is like a, you know, quote unquote, authentic Appalachian experience. And I think that one thing that I was excited to talk to you about is, is this moment of, of queer writing in Appalachia. But I, I think even more broadly than that, this idea that there are a lot more voices contributing to that story and that idea of what it means to be Appalachian. And, and maybe sometimes it feels like it's because of J.D. Vance and that's a bummer. But, you know, in, in a sense, it seems like a lot of people maybe are talking a little louder now to be like, no, that wasn't that that's not this is not my truth. Yeah, I think that, you know, of course, Appalachian writing has been around for as long as we have been. But I think that I think that if J.D. Vance did anything, I think that he propelled us to claim it Mm -hmm. more. Um, Not that we didn't beforehand, but that, I mean, he's presenting one narrative and he's speaking like it's a universal truth. And he's, he's trying to explain why we are the way we are and his understanding is actually very limited and I think it's politically motivated, but I think because he got so much attention and because it was around the time of the election that it was sort of like a wake up call. There've been people, Appalachians working hard and writing and telling their stories for a long time. But I think part of it is we're just so tired of the same narrative getting tossed along and being the one that gets attention and, you know, Appalachia is taking the blame and rural people are taking the blame for a lot of things that, yes, they contribute to. I don't think they're the sole reason for some of these things, but I think he, I don't know if it's that he gave us agency so much as he just, he pissed us all off. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a sense of courage and being so frustrated about the story that's being told. I mean, J.D. Vance is around my age, and he's writing about Breathitt County, Kentucky, which is one county over from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And there were things he talked about that I've never seen before. Right. And I grew up, I wasn't middle class by any means. My family wasn't the most poverty stricken, but they definitely struggled and and we lived down in a holler. Our closest neighbor was probably a quarter mile or half a mile away. But he's mentioned things that I've never heard ever seen. And so that's hard for me to believe that he's not playing on some stereotypes. And that's frustrating. So I think, you know, that book in general just made a lot of people mad because we're tired of being presented as we're just this one way. And there's so much depth to what's in the region and to the people in the region. And there are plenty of parts of it that aren't that pretty to look at. but it's just we're being devalued every time something like this happens with every J.D. Vance and every 
version of deliverance or every time that story is told, we're being devalued. And I think people are tired of it. Right. Going back to that idea that you just mentioned about courage, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that as you experienced it kind of through the the process of bringing this book into the world as it looks now and partially that transition from the personas, but, you know, even, even more broadly than that, just the themes that you're working with are a lot of experiences that, you know, I, I can't claim myself, you know, it's about coming out and, and leaving an evangelical family and there, you know, there are instances of domestic abuse. And, and so there are really difficult things to write about that I imagine wouldn't have felt safe to write about for a very long time. It's funny because I think the most vulnerable I have felt um, with the book has been when the pre-orders started shipping. Mm -hmm. They started shipping and people started sending me photos and posting photos on Facebook or Instagram. And they're like, Oh, look what came in the mail today. And I was excited and, had been waiting for this moment for so long, but I also felt this overwhelming sense of vulnerability because it's not that it it hasn't been real or felt very real for a long time. I mean, the book was accepted in the summer of 2017, I think. And so we've been, you know, talking about it and editing it and doing all this other stuff for a while, but there was something about it being out there as a whole book that I think just sort of hit me at my core, the book itself, I think that, I mean, one of the things I was trying to do when it was persona poems was write about domestic violence and write about the ways we mistreat the environment and all this other stuff and write about religion. But I was leaving being clear out of it. And once I started rewriting the book and putting it in my voice and putting it in a stronger Appalachian vernacular and I think that what happened was I started to realize just how intertwined all of these things are. One of the things I really struggled with is I wanted to find examples of queer and lesbian, strong Appalachian women writing, writing about their experiences. And I couldn't find a whole lot. And it's not that they don't exist. And and I'm positive of that, but it, it's that a lot of them are, just now starting to write or, you know, these stories just haven't been as, I don't know, anthologized or haven't even been published. So for me, it was a lot of reading, falling back on some of uh, my foundation with authors like, you know, Adrian Rich and Alicia Ostracker and relying on uh, women like Audre Lorde and her fearlessness and the way that she wrote about her sexuality and trying to find strength from that and then relying on women like Dorothy Allison and Nikki Finney. Yeah, I mean, I just felt like I didn't have a whole lot to pull from when it comes to queer Appalachian authors, which is funny because I'm also in this anthology that just came out that's full of us. But, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time reading while I was writing and trying to pull strength from the fearlessness of these women that I admire, and not just women authors, but the female component, the feminist and womanist component to it was very important to me. I studied a lot of different poetic elements of authors like Ross Gay um, and Marcus Wicker too, though. So my reading practices and reading more queer authors, I think, became more important because I felt like I knew, like I knew what my story was. I know my experiences and 
how I felt, but trying to figure out how to tell them and not just tell the stories, but tell them in the most honest way possible. And so I had to find, I had to dig deep to find that place. And, but once I was able to do that, it opened up a lot of doors and windows in my writing. It created a shift that basically built this book. Can you talk a little bit more about like what that kind of looked like day to day, you know, sort of how you, how you held yourself accountable to that? Well, I mean, I had a mentor who was holding me accountable and that made a big difference, but also just, I had to do a lot of writing. I wrote a lot of really bad poems in the (laughs) process of trying to get to the heart of some of these poems. Some of these poems in the book, when they were first written, were significantly longer. Some of them were much shorter than what they are and trying to figure out what was most important in each poem. It just, it had to be a daily practice. And there were days when I was horrible at it. I was also, you know, teaching and doing other stuff, but I just, I had to commit to it. And there were plenty of times where I thought, well, I can't do this. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. I can't be any more honest than what I'm being, or I can't let go of that one lingering thought of, oh my goodness, this person's going to be so tore up because I talked about what they hate a woman, or I've talked about this moment of abuse or whatever. And so I had to find a place where I could just let all that go. And it took time. It took a lot of time. And I should probably point out this also was happening when I was coming out. So it took some therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause you came out um, pretty, pretty late, right? You were in your late twenties. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was like 2015, the fall of 2015 when I started coming out. Um, I was, 31, I think, getting ready to, either 31 or getting ready to turn 31, I can't, um, but I had avoided it for a long time, but I went, I started therapy, and the writing itself, I wouldn't say was therapeutic, but I think that what going to therapy and working on my personal stuff helped me do was find this place of acceptance, and once you find a place of acceptance, then you can start to be honest and authentic about what's happened, and it made a big difference personally and in my poetry. Yeah, I think I think it's so easy to forget when you're writing every day and you're looking at it as work just how powerful it can be to the writer. And I I have had, you know, conversations with with my own therapist as I've been going through, you know, really major life changes that have happened since I started writing the novel that I'm working on. And she at one point was like, you didn't think that you were going to start doing this and nothing was going to get stirred up. Did you like it kind of, everything just kind of feeds, feeds everything else. Yeah. For me, it felt like everything was right there under the surface. And I had this book that I was trying to write and I was trying to figure out what my place was just in the world, but also, you know, as a writer and how do I claim that? And I mean, by that point, I probably would have called myself an Appalachian writer, but I also felt very different from most Appalachian writers. And so it was, you know, how do I fit and how do I find a way to belong? But I just, I had to do some work personally in therapy. And that allowed me to just sort of, as I started to accept myself and who I am, it created a shift in my writing because it took away the shame, I think, of being gay and, um, you know, some of these things that I've been taught to believe that weren't true. So 
once that started to dissipate, my writing shifted and it made a big difference. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. I would love for you to talk a little bit too about, you know, the book obviously is called WWJD, which most people recognize as standing for the phrase, what would Jesus do? And you you have a, a, a kind of peculiar relationship with Jesus through the course of, of the book. And I don't really want to spoil, I'm trying to look for the, the poem that I'm thinking of. When Jesus is talking to you about hitting on the girl. Jesus and I are on a break. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I, I would love for you to talk about that as a sort of theme that you're interested in, but also then just as a device in the poetry, how you started working with it or how how you were approaching that, that persona. Well, um, I think that for me, um, you know, the first couple sections, first section and a half anyway, sort of capture what we're told, particularly in terms of religion, like this is what Jesus would do. This is what Jesus would believe. And he's not a personified character in the first two sections. But I think that what I really wanted to do with the book as a whole, and this is part of why I picked that as the title, was just to really examine, you know, what would this Jesus person that everybody talks about and that we've been taught about, what would he do? And I think that I almost had to put my faith on hold so that I could even begin to accept the fact that I'm gay. I can hear in my head what the church that I grew up in and the churches I grew up attending, what they would say about homosexuality. And I had to, I had to pause in that. And I had to just let myself consider what if that's not true? And what if the thing that matters is love in the end? I kind of love that poem a lot because it's almost where the two start to come back together. It's this point where I feel like I was trying to figure out how to unpause my faith now that I've reached a point where I have less shame about being gay Mm -hmm. or being who I am as a whole. What's your relationship with your faith now? That's a good question. I think that... It's complicated because um, I'm having a really hard time with a lot of Christians supporting politicians and political structures that are designed to oppress people and that are designed to take advantage of people. And so for me right now, my faith is a very personal thing. And I grew up in evangelical churches. And so, you know, with evangelism, one of your beliefs is that you're called to preach the gospel and bring other people to Christ. But for me, Now, I mean, I really believe that any person's faith, whatever faith they practice, I think it's a personal thing. And I think that it's best left between them and the God they believe in or don't believe in. I don't think that 
I am called to save the world. I think I am called to love other people. Yeah. I think that's about, that's where I stand right now. One of the poems that was most powerful to me, I think, um, was Rain, Love. And, and for some of the reasons that we're talking about, of that, I, that idea of talking about love in several different ways at the same time and talking about God or this idea of like nature and this, you know, it's funny. I was just listening to an episode of On Being and I forget the woman's name who was on. I'm going to have to put in the show notes, but she um, was a, an, an ecological activist in Kenya and she grew up, you know, she, she was, you know, her area was converted by missionaries to Christianity and, and she was talking about what she, how much she felt the role of religion was as like an ecological steward. And it, it just struck me in, on a kind of different level of, of the ways in which that practice often doesn't take care of what it believes has been created, the, the wonder that it has been created around them, you know? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, that poem, um, in terms of when it was written and the way it's sort of grown and taken shape, it's probably one of the first poems where I tried to capture the connectedness of sensuality. And when I was writing this poem, I started with just the idea of the rain in the tree. And then it started to, it grew into something more, not as a way to be provocative, but as a way to just show that like, this is the way you love someone. It, you know, the rain doesn't choose one tree over the other, and you don't, I mean, you don't choose who you fall in love with, but I mean, the environmental component of it, of course, strikes a chord with anyone from Appalachia, because we've, we've exploited the land and caused damage to the land, and it's damage that can't be undone, all for the sake of money, and I think we're in a crisis right now overall, not just in our country, but worldwide, where if we don't make big changes quick, the ecological consequences are going to be, they're going to change everything in a, in a way that's going to, I think, hurt. It's going to, you know, cancer rates are soaring and global warming. And it just, it feels like it's like Appalachia everywhere almost, you know, like. Right. Because then you've got, you know, also so many of those statistics are so much higher in our region anyway. For, for all of these reasons. Right, yeah. It blows my mind because, you know, we talk about coal mining and this industry that provided a way of survival for so many people. But, you know, people are also real quick to deny, you know, the fact that our cancer rates are astronomical. Mm-hmm. You know, in my hometown, we've had, in the last 10 years, multiple kids getting brain tumors that are incurable. Wow. And... People don't want to talk about what's in the water or could be in the water or, you know, what what are all these things causing? You know, is it the fallout from the mining and from the things we've done? I don't know. I think that there's more than likely a strong correlation, you know, and I think we just we overlook some of the damage we do. And we're all guilty of it. It's not that it hurts in a way that I think surprises me sometimes like just the way we treat the planet yeah I think that's one of the most powerful kind of top level themes of the book for me is the way 
the different ways that you're exploring how and why we inflict pain, you know, whether that is on the, on the land and, and that is a subject that's so dear to Appalachians as, as we're saying, but, and then also on each other and, and sometimes physical violence and sometimes psychological violence or, or just the lack of acceptance and the ways we inflict pain on ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think I was in the editing process of looking at some of the poems and making sure there weren't any gaps before I realized how violent the book is. Because I do, I write about, you know, the way we treat the environment, but I write about domestic abuse and mental abuse and self-harm is also a component. And so I don't think that stood out to me until I took a step back and was looking at it from an editorial perspective. But it's definitely a huge theme throughout the book and the ways we hurt one another and hurt ourselves. Yeah. In general, you know, did you feel like were some of those themes more salient to you than others in the process? Or or is it kind of after the fact for you where you're you're looking at it more of a remove and you can kind of see more holistically what what you're talking about? I think that in the writing of the book, you know, I knew that when I was writing certain poems, I knew that I was trying to write about the domestic abuse I've experienced and witnessed. And I've tried to be honest about, although I don't dive into this in great depth in the book, but the fact that I practiced self-harm for a while. But I think that when I was looking at it later, seeing just all the ways it came together, I don't think, I don't think that's, an explicitly Appalachian experience, even though I'm writing from a very Appalachian perspective or I'm using very specific Appalachian language. These are things I think that we all deal with. I think that domestic abuse is clearly rampant in our country. Women are so undervalued yeah. and men experience it as well. And But then, I mean, think I think that there's a part in one of the poems where I make a comparison between strip mining and breast cancer. Yeah. I have not had breast cancer, but it runs in my family and I'm writing about that using, you know, language and descriptions that are straight from, you know, what happens when you strip mine coal and so, or, you know, mountaintop removal and seeing those correlations. And I mean, that's a very violent act. It's a very violent act to remove part of a woman's body, you know, and how do you bounce back from that? How do you bounce back from blowing the top off a mountain? You know, those are questions that I wrestle with and I think the region wrestles with. But I think that as a people, we don't talk about the different violences we experience in us. Right, right. And I think, you know, going back to your exploration of your faith, too, it, it's, it, it feels to me when I think about these things that, like, so much of that does come back to this absence of some very foundational kind of love and some very foundational sense of interconnectedness. Yeah, I mean, I think we've gone away from a foundation of love and turned it to a foundation of control mm. in a lot of ways. And so, you know, when people want to maintain control or have control, they act out in violence in different ways. But I mean, even... You know, being emotionally manipulative is a form of violence, I think, and has lasting effects on the person that you're inflicting it on. We don't talk enough about, I mean, I don't know if we were ever at a point where women have been, have not been treated this way 
or black people have not been treated even worse. People of color, immigrants. But I, I just, I don't think, I don't think we talk about it enough. And I think we're at a point in this country where it's coming, it's coming to a boil. The people who have the power want to keep it, and they're trying desperately to keep it. But they're also rapidly becoming outnumbered, and so it's it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I think we need to have more conversations. Absolutely, yeah. I want to um, talk a little bit, if we could, about um, if you if you could talk about your writing practice and what that looks like for you on on a given day. Well, <laughs> my writing practice has been a little sporadic the last several months for multiple reasons, but I don't always get to write every day. I would love to. I don't always get to. But what I do try to do is read something. And so sometimes that's an essay in an online journal or magazine that I like or a print one that I've gotten. Sometimes it's a book of poetry. Sometimes it's two or three poems. And so if I'm not writing, I'm trying to read all the time. And I consider that part of my practice of writing. I really do, because reading itself, you learn so much about language and different perspectives and how to tell your story when you're reading and studying. So I try to do that no matter what. Um, I would love to be this person who gets up at like 4 or 5 a.m. Oh, and write. And I can be an early bird, but I don't write well that early in the morning. So I usually will take my fiance to work and then I start to write. And I'm trying, I'm working on a book of essays right right now um, that I think will probably take the form of a memoir or be a memoir in essays somehow. I have written some poetry, um, but I've been focusing more on prose here lately. Is that is that um, a new development for, me, for you, or do you, you do you often switch between the two? It's funny because I I have written essays before, and I've written personal essays. You know, I wrote when I was an undergrad. I wrote personal essays, even though even then I would have told you I was a poet. But I did a, I did an honors thesis that was personal essays, and so I'm not unfamiliar with the form. Um, but in graduate school. I focused completely on poetry, and that's been my focus for so long. So I've just been, the last year or two, getting back into reading that kind of writing to study it. And I'll just read it to enjoy it, but to study it. So it's not totally new to me, but it's also, I'm coming at it from a much more disciplined angle, I think, this time around. And one of the things I realized when I was writing the poems was there's more to my story that I think it lends itself to prose. And so for, that's where the essay components have come in. And um, I would love for you to also talk a little bit about, because you've made, you've made a couple mentions of doing very close study readings of certain writers for different reasons. And what's your reading practice like? Like how do you, how do you sit when you're sitting down with a piece, you know, expressly to kind of like learn something from it or take apart a thing that it's doing? How, how do you approach it? For me, it means doing one of two things. And this first thing feels almost sacrilegious because I'm starting to annotate Mm -hmm. my books Mm -hmm. 
which feels feels like the worst possible kind of sin. Wait, do you mean like me. just like right in the margins um, and stuff? Yeah, okay. right in the margins and highlight or underline. I don't highlight, I underline. But I'm just starting to get into that practice a little bit because I've always just felt like, oh, you don't write in your books, which mm-hmm. is weird because I probably did write in my textbooks in college. But I think that for me, part of that practice is sitting down with, whether it's a memoir or you know, even with a short story, sitting down with it and, you know, marking stuff that sticks out to me and then going back and thinking about, you know, why does that stick out mm. to me? Um, my practice for a long time has been to take note. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, you know, if I see a quote, I'll write it down and then write my thoughts or write it down and come back to it. But that takes a lot of time and it I'm does. not the fastest reader. And so I started maybe trying to annotate some mainly for to be a little bit faster about it. But right. There is something though, I do that with the quotes too. And there is something that's really, you know, I, I'm not like a massive Hunter S. Thompson fan, but I remember this anecdote about Hunter S. Thompson that he would type up his favorite books. Like he would just type them out to like feel the experience of writing those words. And and there is something similar for me when I, when I write out a quote that really, that I really love. Well, and for me, um, it has it it helps me remember to be honest yeah. um it helps me remember um important points even more so than annotating does and sometimes you know i sit down with something to read it without having the intention of actually studying it but i've seen you know seen something about it and thought oh maybe i should read that that might be good to read and then it sparks something and then i'm like oh no i'm going to have to study this <laughs> so you know right now i'm writing a lot of essays and so there was a period where I was reading a lot of essays and I'm still reading some, but now I'm trying to focus more on writing mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to read poetry. You know, I think that no matter what form you're writing, if you're reading poetry, it's going to enrich your language Absolutely. one way or the other. It just, you just can't help it. So, yeah, that's great. Well, well to, to start to wrap up and that might be a good a good segue into this last question, which is something I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? What does creative satisfaction look like? Mm -hmm. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough. (laughs) Um, I think that right now, because of where I'm at with the book being out, it's maybe a little twofold for me in my day to day. My creative satisfaction is if I'm able to spend time writing or spend time in study or both. Um, I'm trying really hard to generate a lot right now. So if I'm able to get some words on the page and not just get them out, but get them, you know, make some real progress, then that feels like satisfaction. The other thing that feels like satisfaction, and this isn't on the day to day, but is you know, someone telling me, I read your book and I enjoyed your book or this poem spoke to me. That's not why I wrote the book. You know, I don't, I didn't write the book so it could be published and people could say these things. But part of wanting the book to be published had to do with, I hope that it empowers someone else to tell their truth. And so when someone says to me, you know, this poem really spoke to me or, you know, I thank you for being honest about what your experiences have been the good ones or the bad ones, or however you want to look at it. That's another kind of creative satisfaction because it makes me feel like 
maybe I'm empowering someone else or maybe my words are empowering someone else. And so it feels like I'm passing on the torch, so to speak, because part of why I'm able to tell my story or able to write is because someone else's words have empowered me. So it feels good to know that maybe I'm also doing that for another person. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.